Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And welcome to the New Statesman Podcast. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about Train Gate, the gatiest gate of all. Um, I uh, hmm, I don't know. Do you and I agree on this? I think it is worth talking about. Are you going to be pious and tell me that actually we should be talking about the NHS? I, I mean, to be honest, I feel I've been fairly pious about it on the Twitters already, so I should probably uh, shut my mouth. I mean, so I'm always torn with these kind of like... Micro scandals. Micro scandals. Because on the one hand, and it's one of the things I find deeply fascinating about the internet, right, is this way that the internet has given readers a device in which they can angrily claim to journalists that they are not interested in stories than we have hard data <laughs> showing that they are incredibly interested in. It's comfortably been read more times than any of the cabinet policy audits of, of the incoming Conservative cabinet. Yeah, I tested this as well by asking if anyone had read anything good about the um, Jeremy Corbyn's plans for a wraparound national education service. And honestly, it was like, wah, wah, wah. Actually, that's not that right one, is it? I was trying to make a tumbleweed noise, but whatever a tumbleweed noise is, that is what I was responded to with. It's not just that, maybe, you know, and maybe you say, well, maybe there's the biased MSM aren't reporting articles about it, but I can't even find, I can't find anywhere any kind of detail about it. It's, um, it's yeah. Because I think the interesting thing is, I think actually the criticism of it is entirely legitimate. It's just the diagnosis is wrong. Right, so I mean, so for example, it is, a, it is farcical that the Guardian, the BBC, and several other have sent people on a train. Yeah, on that's a train weird. Today. So it, the timeline is: I think the, vid, the journey happens on the 11th of August. On the 16th of August, a filmmaker who is freelance but has been phone banking for the Corbyn campaign, and it's like, well, yeah, is doing some kind of video documentary. Thing. Yeah, uh, releases this video of, of, of Corbyn in the vestibule, saying, you know, this train is absolutely ram-packed, a new word that he has coined. Uh, you know, and I've had to sit down here. And this is typical. You know, the staff are lovely, but this is typical of Britain's overcrowded trains. Yeah. And then Virgin Trains have gone through their CCTV and gone, actually, no, there were seats, including you yourself took a seat that no point was the, was the train jam-packed, rammed or ram-packed. Uh, I don't know. I feel of all of the people to be mocking someone for doing a, a malapropism, I am so far down that I am. Just, my my house is made entirely of glass on this issue. But anyway, the um, problem with it was is that the line kept changing. I think if they'd just kind of gone, if they'd come up with some, if they come up with the, what the final line that they've come that is now kind of the, the wheel has rested on, is that actually Corbyn wanted to sit with his wife and they were looking for two seats together, right? Which is reasonable because very often on a crowded train there is only one seat. Uh, it it doesn't 
it, it is a bit of a like you have no right to have two seats together on a train. I mean, my instinct is is that basically these these micro scandals have two types: Piggate, which everyone thinks was hilarious, but everyone kind of forgot. Sort of, you know, or you remember when Cameron cycled to work, but the car had his his briefcase in. And focus groups, whenever you ask them about David Cameron, that always comes up, even now. Even now, is, you, was quite you think ru- the number one thing would be ruined our economy. Um, but, it, the, but the trouble was, again, much like the whole train incident, is that actually Cameron's rationale was quite reasonable, right? Which is that he wanted to get some exercise, but he had to. the, the car had to take the secure red boxes with it, right? But the, the cycling was also part of that. The uh, cycling you know, was a publicity stunt. I, I care the- about in the environment. I don't hate gay people. I'm a new type of conservative leader. Uh, but I think what it really reminds me of is the War of Jennifer's Ear, which for listeners who are young or... You and know, haven't had the pleasure of reading Philip Gould's Unfinished Revolution, yeah, as and, I did last summer and you did this summer. Um, and, uh, you know, so they had a party political broadcast about people having their operations cancelled because of cuts, which obviously is a real thing which happened all the time. So this is when this is New of, Labour in opposition, just well, before no, they got in? this is 1992, so, yeah. so kind of... So it's pre... Pre-New Labour. Yeah. Um, so... Um, and it's actually a very good, well-put-together advert based on a letter that someone had written to Robin Cook, who was then the Shadow Health Secretary. But it then turned out there were various problems with this specific case. The consultant then told the media that actually it had been delayed by admin, not cuts. It had turned out that they hadn't adequately squared the consultant. Uh, it turned out that her, although her father was a Labour supporter... Her mother and grandmother were conservatives and they immediately condemned the video. But of course, the fundamental truth of the issue, yeah, is entirely the case. And in, and that's the interesting thing is once again, you have a situation where are there lots of virgin trains which are absolutely rammed? Yes, there are. I mean, I, I take a virgin train, uh, you know, probably every month to see my in-laws and most, more often than not, one of us ends up in the vestibule or the atrium or... And, and as with Jennifer's ear, at every point, it would have been better off just to go, it's not our day, lads, and just let the, 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 the waves wash over you. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, the kind of the, the interesting counterpoint, of course, is Lunatic Gate. Uh, well, hang on a minute. Let's, before we get to Lunatic Gate, I wanted, yeah, I think that's the thing that I think is the kind of comms takeaway from this, is, is make sure that you have one line and that everybody knows it and can stick to it because the problem is that they kept sort of saying well you know different things so there was a bit where someone said oh there were children on the seats or very small people on the seats so you couldn't see them and then there was a thing about people put their bags on the seats and went to the loo which you know like well how many people can you fit in a train loo was a good question um and i think that was the that was the problem and also because there was a cctv footage it, it positively invited people who were bored at work to play amateur internet detective and start scrutinizing stills of stuff to try and reconstruct a timeline like it was for for a certain type of kind of nerdy puzzle solver, it became, you know, all the clues were there, right? And you could just kind of put it together yourself. But yeah, Lunatic Gate. So you caught this in real time. Owen Smith said what? Owen Smith was speaking at a rally in Hammersmith in which he said, what we're not going to get with me is, you know, some lunatic at the top of the party. I'm going to say something really unfashionable, right? Which is that I don't think that lunatic is particularly offensive because it is an archaic word i think if you'd said if he'd said some mental or someone with asperger's or some you know or some you know whatever schizo i think then th- those kind of things but it is it, it refers to someone who's driven mad by phases of the moon like it's not a real medical condition but i i, I don't i don't I, I disagree because i think if 
you were trying to get planning permission to build a mental health facility somewhere, people would say, I don't want any lunatics near me. They, they wouldn't, it, it, its meaning may be archaic, but people do use it to mean people with uh, mental health problems. Whereas, say, idiot, for example, um, is quite different uh, because people just think that means, you know, mm. you're not very quick. I can, yeah, I can, I can kind of see that. I just, I don't know. I feel, I feel quite, I feel quite ambivalent about it. I know people feel very strongly about it, but I also, you know, know a lot of people in my life who have had mental health problems and who quite strongly feel that they don't want that vocabulary taken away from them, or they don't want people to prissy around the fact that mental health problems are actually quite a difficult thing to live with. Yeah, but there's something the sort of sanitization of sort of this idea that we're all just sort of differently abled. Well, actually, no. You know what? Going through severe depression is cruddy. It is really cruddy. Yeah, and it's whatever. It's interesting because it's a bit like the long-standing schism between some of the uh, the the deaf lobby and some of the various visually impaired lobbies. In for the deaf lobby, the right to work has for most of the of, of the of, of human history been a harder equality battle. For the visually impaired, the right not to work or have adjusted uh, standards has been a big one. So there's always been some friction between those two uh, lobbies. Do you know the other interesting thing is how quickly that... Uh, I mean, I agree with you that generally it is, for a politician, it is a very bad idea to use anything that's seen as stigmatising people with mental health. Because we've been through this with, uh, you know, Kevin Jones, the MP, who was... I can't remember what, what was said to him, but it was someone... He was basically attacked for having previously suffered depression. And it just looks phenomenally unclassy and rude. But um, someone obviously went through back through Corbyn's early day motions and he signed several from the 90s in which he describes things as lunatic, like, you know, this lunatic plan to do this and that and the other. So, I, you know, fair enough. You know, you don't really remember the 90s. I remember the 90s. He got, a lot away, got away with a lot of stuff in the 90s yeah. that wouldn't fly now. Well, but I it think, is interesting how that has changed. Yeah, and I think also that Owen Smith was calling him mad, right? And I mean... And this is, again, this thing about having... I mean, I think If he choose the word they, mad, would it be okay? You wouldn't have a madman at the top of the party. Would that have been okay? No, I mean, I could, I could see how it would have upset people because, I mean, it, it is a pejorative use of the word mad. He doesn't think that Jeremy Corbyn should be, be leader of the Labour Party. It does kind of equate madness with wanting to leave NATO, being, like, unable to successfully make the point that trains are crowded... Well, I guess we what we need then is we need some new vocabulary to to represent the idea of has terrible judgment, but like in, um, in a much snappier form. Yeah, I think. Well, okay. Here's the real talk. Jeremy Corbyn's people saw they went, well, hey, Owen Smith's made a gaffe, hooray! And like then you could what you could do then do is spend the next hour on Twitter demanding that people give e- exactly equal weight to this bad phraseology of Owen Smith as to the train wreck, right? Because 99% of Twitter now is demanding that people, you know, like people adjust the calibration of that outrage depending on what things you think they should be outraged about. But equally, and it's kind of, you know, the underlying problem of his leadership bid, he does make these gaffes. Mm. I mean, of course, the difference is he makes these gaffes, they issue a statement saying he's a gaffe and he's a gaffe. <laughs> he is a gaffe. He's uh, a living embodiment of gaffe. Uh, and uh, that was a slightly Freudian there. And uh, and only maybe 10% of his supporters verbally abused journalists for saying it was a gaffe. Whereas with Corbyn, uh, he denies it's a gaffe. Uh, they spend hours falling over themselves and 80% of their supporters say it's a gaffe. I'm really starting to dislike most people in the Labour Party. Uh, I'm getting... I'm, I'm Toby from the Westbrook right now. There is literally no one I don't hate right now. But I also think that Owen Smith supporters should probably not enjoy the complete pasting that Jeremy Corbyn is getting... 
Because whether or not they think he's getting it fairly, they should remember that the, whoever is Labour leader after him, if indeed there is a Labour leader after Jeremy Corbyn, will also get that. And and actually, just because you happen to be on the same side as a lot of people who would say horrible things about the Labour leader, regardless of whether they were true or not, for the moment, soon you won't be. So don't don't get too caught up in the schadenfreude. Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, you can get this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. All right, and now it's time to go not down the line to the to the lobby because uh, it is, is recess, but I guess you have gone down to the valleys. I went down to the valleys, yes, to see Owen Smith, who was speaking at a a miners club there and it was quite a notable day it was the day that Labour members started voting in the contest um, when ballots arrived on their doorsteps and his pitch that day was partly to tell a story about his background so he was talking about um, walking back with the miners on the day the uh, 84-85 strike ended as a teenager so painting a picture of his radical heritage and then he promised Labour members, um, essentially, that they would have a veto over his future policies. He said that, I want to make the Labour conference sovereign again. I will respect its decisions, whatever stances it takes. And that might seem quite an odd thing for a leader to do, to bind their hands in that way, that he'd put all this effort into winning the contest. And then he gives all this power to the members. But of course, it's because he fears that unless he reassures those who are currently supporting Jeremy Corbyn, those who are sympathetic to him, that he'll be able to stick to all the left-wing promises he's made, then he has no chance of winning. Because speaking to Corbyn supporters at, at rallies in recent weeks, a theme which constantly recurs is that, well, of course, Owen Smith made all these nice left-wing promises in the campaign, that he'll ban zero-hour contracts, he'll impose a 1% wealth tax, he'll spend $200 billion on on infrastructure, and so on. But... The second he becomes leader, all those nasty Blairite MPs are going to confront him and he'll be forced to, to back down. So this is a way of trying to say, I'll have something like a triple lock on policy. You know, I've offered to make Jeremy Corbyn party president or party chair. I'm going to make uh, conference votes binding. Yeah. Um, in terms of his chances of winning, I think it's fair to say the consensus in this building is he has none. What is the consensus in Owen Smith? Yeah, privately, what are people saying about Owen Smith's campaign? Privately, most MPs are genuinely more optimistic than uh, certainly the, the media consensus would suggest and than um, constituency party nominations suggest. So Jeremy Corbyn won 84% of constituency nominations. His social media reach is far greater than, than Owen Smith's. Uh, but the line which you hear from MPs is that there's this quiet uh, majority for Owen Smith. He's run a very targeted campaign. He's appealing to trade unionists in uh, areas such as defence who fear that they'd, they'd lose their jobs if uh, if Jeremy Corbyn were ever to, to enter power. And they think they'll get them to, to turn out. There's a projection that's been made by the anti-Corbyn group Saving Labour, which shows the candidates roughly neck and neck, but Owen Smith just ahead, they think. They think Jeremy Corbyn will win among Labour members, quite comfortably, actually, uh, by 57 to 43. But they think Owen Smith will get more than 60% of the registered supporters. That's those who pay £25 to pay in the contest. 
and a similar number of affiliated trained union members. Um, those figures do look rather optimistic, it has to be said. And certainly if there is a silent majority for Owen Smith, it's an incredibly silent one. They're not showing up on Twitter or Facebook. They're not showing up at his rallies. They're not showing up at CRP meetings. You know, where are these people? But of course, we should be somewhat cautious because we haven't had any public polling on the, on the Labour leadership race. Leadership races are often unpredictable. We do know, as he told me actually in, in the interview I did with him, that selection contests are often won by the candidate who hasn't had the highest profile, but who has done the work on the ground and who has won the votes that they need to get to get over the line. Um, hopefully at some point we'll have a YouGov public poll. YouGov called it right in 2010, called it right in 2015, has a very good record. Um, but until then, all the signs are that, that Jeremy Corbyn is likely to win. Right. And um, if, uh, if, as we expect, he does, what happens next? I mean, you know, do, do, do people go back into his cabinet? I mean, I've heard people talking about a challenge as early as January, which I think is actually maybe responsible for me developing my first grey hair. Um, what, 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 what's your sense of what will happen mm. if... The media are obsessed with the idea of a split or, or a breakaway group being formed. That's not um, an option at the moment. It's not a likely outcome. Uh, MPs, when they do mention the idea, say that it's something which a wave of deselections could trigger if their hand is forced. Um, but actually, it's quite hard to deselect MPs. I think there may be some deselections, but, but not many. Um, and then the rebels, broadly, I'd say, are, are split into two camps. There are those, as you say, who think they need to have another leadership challenge at some point. Uh, it looks unlikely that there'll be an early general election uh, next year. And that means that they've obviously got time to challenge Corbyn again, and they will want to get him out before a general election um, in 2020 or, or slightly earlier. And they think that they can turn the registered supporter system to their advantage. They think the mistake that the rebels made this time was to narrow the selectorate to charge people £25 rather than £3 and to pick a candidate, Owen Smith, who's on the soft left of the party, can appeal to Corbyn supporters in, in a way that uh, more Blair-esque candidates perhaps couldn't, uh, but who's not particularly charismatic, who hasn't really inspired even his own supporters, who tend to make the argument that he's more competent, that he's more electable they never sound particularly excited by him mm. it's a very hard-headed analysis and so others say you need a candidate like Chukwu Muna, someone with more star power someone who could allow Corbyn's opponents to to out recruit him and then there are others in the PLP who say if Jeremy Corbyn wins again we just have to shut up um, because Although it's not true that Labour MPs never gave him a chance. It's true that some were against him from the start. And if we just continue gunning for him throughout the Parliament, then the risk, they say, is that when Labour suffers what they fear will be a landslide general election defeat, it's the MPs who will be blamed. And they fear that Jeremy Corbyn could try and ha hang on to the leadership in those circumstances, or that another left winger could. And so the view is when Labour is defeated, the the blame has to be pinned on Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters. We can't allow ourselves to be the scapegoats. All right. Um, so the struggle for power will continue, but what form it will take, we will find out at a later date. That's all.
You have to do the introduction now. And we're joined to discuss <laughs> Ghostbusters uh, with our culture writer, Anna Leskovic. Hello. The thing is, I, I, you advanced this thesis before, and I now unfortunately agree with it, which is that everybody has too good a memory of the original Ghostbusters based on their affection for the song, not in fact the film. Yeah, so I actually think... Th- I mean, I really loved the film, right? But you were like, what, seven when you first saw oh, it? Oh, no, I mean, this the, the new oh, one. Oh, the new one, okay. New one. I thought the new one was brilliant. So did I. I enjoyed the new My, one. I, but I think the reason why lots of people are like, oh, it's not as good as the old one, is like, have you watched the old one? Like, the old one has a, a brilliant a brilliant song. Uh, yeah, the one thing I would change about the new one, the Blink-182 cover of Ghostbusters. <laughs> I, I, I mean, fine, you can gender swap, but it turns out white people cannot sing the Ghostbusters song. <laughs> Sorry, it's just true. Um, but the original one, uh, some good faces by Bill Murray. Uh, the bit when Winston Zeddemore says, "May I have seen some things that would turn you white," <laughs> and as Dickless here says, "Is this?" And then the mayor interests, "Is this true?" Yes, I can confirm this man has no dick. Those are the three good jokes in the in the Ghostbuster, in the original Ghostbusters film, right? But we all have far too much affection for the theme music. It's actually, yeah, it's not that great. Okay, I'm going to be the voice of, of mewlingness, which is that I think I went into this film with very high expectations. And it was kind of, it was fine. Like, I enjoyed it a normal amount. And that's one of the things I find really difficult about the reaction to it, is it's been turned essentially into an, a prop in this kind of endless ongoing culture war, where it's like, do you love women? Then you'll love Ghostbusters. And, you know, only people who hate women hate Ghostbusters. And I don't want to be on the same side as a, like, Miley Yiannopoulos, basically. Who probably, let's face it, probably didn't even see the film. I mean, I think that was the, the kind of one... So the the one problem with it, and it's brilliant, and I'm looking forward to owning it on DVD, is, I mean, obviously the fourth Ghostbuster is is always racially a fairly problematic moment in cinema. Mm-hmm. But when... Um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays Winston Zeddemore. In the, but in the original film, right, Jesse Jackson had not even run for president at the first time. At the When this one came out, Barack Obama has been president for eight years. The social progress between Leslie Jones's character and the original Winston Zeddemore does not reflect that. And in fact, actually, in many ways, it's what... Like, I mean, I laughed to, uh, at every single, yeah, we've gone to the loud black woman well joke. They were all individually funny. Mm. However, at the end of it, you're just like, oh, wow, well, you've... You're really... left with this sort of uncomfortable feeling of, was that really yeah. what they decided to do with that character yeah. the whole way through? And I think that is, is once you start getting into the idea of a film making a social statement, it opens everything else up to to kind of you just because you you start thinking about it more, right? Whereas if you if it if we never had any of this stuff about gender swapping, you might not have even kind of you know really interrogated other axis of of. The, oh yeah, the... so if it had just been a straight remake, as it were, with just. No, I think the thing is, I think if it were a straight remake, make remake, it would have been worse because I think it would have got less of a a pass because in some ways it's just kind of like a surprising change than, you know, none of them takes a shower in the film or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Then people... I like how normal sized they were. That was my favourite thing, is that you had like, um, Kristen Wiig basically looked like a twiglet, right? Because they were two like human sized women <laughs> in the film. <laughs> yeah. It was like, you know that thing that someone said about the Olympics is that there should be like one normal person trying every event just to remind you that actually it is really hard <laughs> to ride a horse over like a five foot high I fence. Think I think every film should have, yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you have a go at discus throwing. See how you do. You don't get a sense of how impressive, the heptathlon actually looks like they're just some kids in a gym. Like <laughs> it's only if you like had like, a, and now a normal person will attempt to clear this like 
sandbank. But I would like it basically if, if every film, someone like my size just went and hugged Natalie Portman just so that you could go, oh, oh, wow, she's a <laughs> she's a tiny little lady. Give that, you know. But yeah, anyway, that's, I think, that was my main takeaway. I like that about Ghostbusters. Yeah, and I think the problem, going back to the sort of social progress element of these movies, um, is that they're sort of quite like lightly feminist or lightly, you know, progressive in other ways. And Alison Herman over at The Ringer um, sort of came up with a term for these sorts of movies as the woke buster uh so like the ghostbusters remake like i don't know bad neighbors 2 sorority rising if you saw that this summer um, i missed that but which i enjoyed heartily but has a strong like they're women we shouldn't attack them oh no they're strong actually we've realized that women are just as bad as boys sort of plot line um and you know sisters bad moms uh i saw how to be single this year which is very similar and it's all these movies that sort of employ that rhetoric of you know ladies out here doing it for themselves it's the sort of implicit back pat as well you can hear the sort of light sound of a back being patted yeah throughout. it's and very it, smug and self-congratulatory without actually doing much work and it slightly reminds me a bit you'll enjoy this the bit from um these women in uh the west wing oh, yeah. where they where the president and the chief of staff and josh stand around going like oh look at cj she's got such terrific spunk and it's like and it's just you're just like she's 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 considerably better at her job than you are most of the time. Mm-hmm. And just, you know what I mean? It has that sort of sense about, oh, look at the adorable little ladies with the jetpacks that can do stuff. Yeah, whereas the tone of Ghostbusters I found slightly better. And I would like to see that vague sort of uh, idea that, you know, women can be all kinds of different sizes and we can make jokes about men getting their jobs because they're pretty in the same way that people have made jokes about women for years and years, sort of just coming into normal films rather than it being this huge song and dance of like, this is the feminist film of the summer. Because, I mean, does it really do anything massively feminist apart from just show women women having a a good go at what men do i think it what i liked it i like that i mean i am a big fan of the kind of generally women gross out genre right because i just think that is really refreshing i know that this works me out as being essentially like whatever the female version of a man child is but i like i like fart jokes i'm sorry yeah. i find them very funny i like jokes I about women eating far too much you know i like all that that stuff because it just feels so it like it smashes that brittle shell of like ladylike behavior that you see, you know, which you so see even in action stars, you know, these sort of action stars that like, you know, when, you know, think of, think of Bruce Willis's like horrible, sweaty, bloody vest <laughs> at the end of Die Hard. And actually think about how rarely you see, you know, you get these sort of women who like, like Angelina Jolie in her action role, she lightly perspires. You know, I want to see the triangle like, cut on the cheek or just on oh, the just, cheekbone oh. that slightly emphasises the structure of the face. Certainly, still no immaculate blusher, obviously. Mm. But, you know, I just want to be more people like sort of stringy hair and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the difference between a film like Bridesmaids and a film like Ghostbusters is that one of them does it with such heart and uh, like genuine sort of originality. And the Ghostbusters movie just kind of falls short of that. And I by no means thought it was a bad movie. I found it really, really enjoyable. I loved watching every second. I would probably watch it like four times over. But I just think Bridesmaids... If I had a teenage more. child, I would definitely take them to watch Ghostbusters, right? Definitely. It's just exactly that right level of feeling kind of slightly anarchic and silly. And It's a feel-good movie, so it's not doing anything overly revolutionary. Yeah, but but Stephen, does it suggest that the summer blockbuster is still a thing? Because it didn't do that well at the box office. Well, so there is this, this meme of the summer blockbuster being over, including... Um, we actually we did do an X-Men special, I'm lying. Um, including my beloved X-Men Apocalypse, which... 
did very well abroad. I quite enjoyed X Men Apocalypse. I think X Men Apocalypse. Really... When I realised it was Oscar Isaac halfway through, I was like, "Oh yeah." I think a lot of the oh the blockbuster is over is critics who are fatigued of watching well, the crap, same type of crap film. Marvel. That's the trouble. It's 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 it's, it's the problem was like Suicide Squad was a, was a kind of hash, and Batman versus Superman was like a fourteen year old so boy's idea. I actually of... think Suicide Squad was inadvertently very good. Okay, go on. Not for any... I don't... Yeah, I'm not saying it was a good film. But, I mean, it, there are so many lines where the fact an adult typed it, looked it and went, nailed it, nailed that line. <laughs> yeah, because the, yeah, the latest Avengers film, I, I enjoyed. I just think the problem is that they've got so many moving parts, right, that they end up trying to, you know, service so many character storylines that very few people can actually keep kind of that juggling. I feel like maybe the issue is, were blockbusters ever good? Or does every year, is there like one or two blockbusters that like pierce the rest of sort of the chaff and then you remember those and you look back fondly on like a bygone era of the blockbuster when actually most of them are probably not that great? Yeah, I think that's fair. I wonder if the same thing's happened in films. I'd be really interested to look at the economics as it has in music where kind of you've ended up with sort of superstar um, theory where actually you've ended up with a big concentration of massive tentpole films and actually whether or not the middle is slightly hollowed you know in the way that sort of Taylor Swift makes 14 million quintillion pounds mm-hmm. but actually it's much harder to survive Everyone as just a band um, but it maybe the other thing is that there are just make, there are more things that are being sold as blockbusters and therefore a certain percentage of them yeah, are, are misfiring I'm also... much more worried about the rom-com as a genre because I feel like I haven't seen a good new rom-com in about a million years I feel like Emily Nussbaum of The New Yorker has kind of ruined rom-coms for me because she pointed out when she reviewed Jessica Jones, you know, the um, Netflix original series, that, um, you know, that whole kind of storyline in that about somebody who is sort of trying to force himself on a woman, like, you know, the, the idea is that the baddie makes people fall in love with him. Like, they they just, they can't stop obeying him, basically, is also the plot of Twilight. You know, this sort of idea of somebody who's incredibly controlling, but irresistible. Mm. And now I think that's the problem is that when I watch, even when I go back and rewatch old rom-coms, like I go and watch There's Something About Mary, and I think, why does no one give a toss about what Mary wants in all of this? Mary is just a kind of, you know, she's just the MacGuffin, right? She's just the Holy Grail. She's just a prize to be won over. Mm. And there's so many rom-coms that actually end up being about, like, will the man get what he wants? And that sort of ruined it for me. Yeah, and I think rom-coms in general have moved over to TV, and we're not seeing as much, you know, really smart, really heartfelt rom-coms but i have been re-watching the last two series of house which i can thoroughly recommend if you want to see a really interesting relationship the relationship between cuddy and house is really well written because obviously he's absolutely impossible to live with but she's also much better paid than him in a position of power over him and incredibly independent like it it is an interesting relationship in that sense i've veered widely off topic i'm very sorry (laughs) are blockbusters dying Cuddy and House, nice couple. But things that I've been watching on Netflix <laughs> well, are very important. I think the point about rom-coms is, is a very uh, perceptive one, actually, because I was sitting there thinking, when was the last good rom-com I saw in cinemas? And I actually realised I'd got all my head back all the way back to 2011 and I still hadn't found one that still I... Still grasping. ...that mm. I, I, would, uh, I would re-watch. And I also re-watched Love Actually at the weekend, so I just pretty much hate everyone. <laughs> so I, I, my instinct with rom-coms is, is one of their problems is that... It's kind of somehow acceptable to remake a superhero film or effectively rip off another another plot. Whereas it, whereas with like, oh, so in this one, here's our new yeah. What's our what what's the, what's the thing which makes this one slightly different gimmick. from mm. from last year? It's like, well, this is the thing. 
I haven't seen a great rom-com in a long time. I would love to watch a great rom-com. If anyone has any suggestions of great rom-coms that have come out in the last past five years to prove us wrong, then let us know. And also when X-Men Apocalypse comes out on DVD, buy it. Buy it and and make sure... And appreciate Magneto's face, which he does a lot throughout it, which is always enjoyable. Thank you for joining us, Anna. I hope you will come back soon. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And now onto a section we like to call You Ask Us, in which you ask us things. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter at Stephen KB or at Helen Lewis. I've changed my profile picture to a dude with a big uh, hipster beard because then I won't get mansplained too so much. Is it working? It is working. I can't. I mean, obviously, it's very hard with like the sample size, but I haven't had a single person be like, um, have you read Zizek to me in like 48 hours? It's amazing. Um, what I got asked, actually, and I think it's really interesting that we, we touched on it a bit um, in the past, is what is the role of John McDonnell uh, in the kind of Corbyn menage? Um, you know, he is both Shadow Chancellor. He is the key ally. Uh, I, I mean, OK, so here's my assessment. I think a lot of people see him as the power behind the throne. And the reason they do that is because he's a very active presence in meetings, right? So from what I hear from people who were in the shadow cabinet and MPs, often Jeremy Corbyn's style is to sort of sit and just take everything in, listen to everybody. And actually it'd be John McDonnell who will seem to be the much more kind of, you know, bullish figure in, in the room. And I think that's where they get that impression from. But he's also got a couple of very smart advisors, hasn't he? I mean, he is, he is kind of... He wants to play the game in a way that I think Jeremy Corbyn doesn't. Well, I mean, I think I think it is fair. Because the interesting thing is the temptation is always to compare it with Blair Brown, which I think in the Labour Party is the closest analogue to um, in, in modern times. And certainly into that first phase, because we kind of obviously think about Blair Brown through the prism of what happened at the end of the novel. Um, but, you know, incredibly politically close, basically aligned on most things, Jeremy does tend to defer to John on issues outside of foreign policy, which again, just like Blair, foreign policy is kind of his his thing. Um, yeah, one person, yeah, one who's an ally of both, kind of said, you know, John is kind of like the metronome. You know, kind of he's like the, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of like I don't know, like Cesc Fabregas used to be for Arsenal, whatever. He kind of keeps the. I don't understand why I've gone for a football metaphor. You've just given me is a he? look of. Com- is he? Is he? He's just like Fabregas. Yeah. Good. Um, but he doesn't go off. He's like the rug in the Big Lebowski. He holds the room. Together. <laughs> he really does the room. Together. Um, yeah. Um, where it is slightly different is the reason why Blair was the preferred candidate of so much of the Parliamentary Party and so much, of course, of the Labour Party in 1994 was because he was seen as a, a more surefire winner. There are a couple of reasons why John and not Jeremy, sorry, Jeremy and not John was the candidate last time. One was the idea didn't. John had had a go, Diana had a go, it was his turn. The second is that 
John McDonnell would not have, for various reasons, got the nominations. There are people who are willing to nominate Jeremy because he's... And I mean, well, to... there are people who are willing to nominate Jeremy because he's—they saw him at the time as a nice guy, even if a no hoper. They patronisingly thought. Whereas there are there are more people who actively dislike John McDonnell in the PLP. That's yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the people who don't share. It's interesting. I think that there are people who don't share either of their politics who have always been bigger fans of McDonnell than Corbyn's. However, they are also the kind of people who would never have lent their nominations. To you John, know, to to either of them. I mean, so like, mm. like Johnny Reynolds, who obviously did serve in the shadow cabinet until the first reshuffle. Um, yeah, made the point. Just like, but no, my nomination is about who I think is the best person to be prime minister. If you if you think that who you think is the best prime minister is an issue for debate, why are you nominating someone? And I think that kind of person was much more likely to think actually John's quite impressive, but they would never have given their nomination to him. The kind of person who did is more like, oh, but John's a bit mean, he's a bit rude. Um, but I also think John McDonald is far more willing to, to play the game. So you look at his media appearances, right? He is he's smooth and prepped and ready to do it. Whereas I think particularly in the last... Well, I've seen two clips in the last 24 hours of, of Jeremy Corbyn being very rude to journalists, right? One to people outside his house saying, thank you for invading my personal space. And second to... Um, a Sky journalist asking him at a press conference he called about the NHS, asking him about, about Traingate, and just getting extremely grumpy. And that's actually something, although, you know, John McDonnell notoriously went to a rally and called the shadow cabinet plotters effing useless, he's also much better at kind of controlling, you know, his public face, I think. I think if there were a way for for them to switch, I think that would actually make both of them quite happy. Um, or if Corbyn could have some sort of president I mean I know this is Owen Smith's suggestion that he could have a presidential role but actually the bit of it that really where Jeremy Corbyn comes alive is going to rallies right is going to to turn out people to kind of making people feel good about themselves and good about the labour movement that it can achieve stuff he doesn't seem to me to have an enormous appetite for policy discussions or uh, you know that that kind of managing an office kind of stuff I I was about to use another football metaphor and I'm just go on go for it go on it'll be fine you know, in in some ways, Jeremy's like the, the the striker. He likes to to wander around and occasionally put the ball in the net. Whereas McDonald does the hard running. He's a midfielder. A midfielder. Wow, well done. See, I, I'm really impressed. Yeah, I've watched um, the football. Um, yeah. So Who is the goalkeeper? It's like, actually Diane Abbott is the goalkeeper, isn't she? She's just dependable. Okay. Yes, I you notice her this, when she screws up. I guess in this metaphor, actually, Diane is more like the winger because the, mm. who puts in crosses because Diane is kind of an absolute loyalist in some ways, you know, to, to, to Jeremy mm. as a person as well as sharing his politics. John is one of his best friends, but it's more he's more concerned with the maintenance of Corbynism, as it were. I think yeah. that's kind of fair to say. So in, in some ways it is actually, she's kind of like the Mandelson. It's <laughs> obviously like... Wow, there's a there's a comparison that would make neither of those two people happy. Yeah, um, I think that's probably a good note to to, to leave on. So Diane Abbott is Peter Mandelson. Da 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 da. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. (laughs) 